When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, if you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10. That's podcast10 to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. And now to the top analysis of today's markets. Is oil forming a bottom? Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. With me today is Tony Greer, editor of the Morning Navigator newsletter. Hi, Tony, it's great to see you. And you, Maggie. How are you doing today? I'm doing okay. A little allergies, but other than that, doing pretty good. We um, yeah, we were. I was sneezing right before I came on air, everyone. Uh, <laughs> Tony and I were commiserating. That's what yeah. you have to do at this time of year on the East Coast of the U.S. Totally. Um, but we, uh, you know, we're watching the markets and it was pretty quiet today, but we did notice that oil prices finally started moving a little bit higher. Uh, but it seems that the market is kind of bouncing between growth and supply concerns. I don't know. What are you, what are you thinking about oil these days? Uh, oil, I've been flat for a long time, Maggie. I've been flat for a couple of months now and I'm in the spectator's seats just like everyone else at the moment. Um, you know, I, I, it hasn't been able to do anything technically exciting on the upside, you know, in months now, you know, we had that a little bit of, uh, you know, we had a little shakeup on the OPEC price cuts that turned out to be, you know, we, we closed that gap that they uh, gapped open from and kept heading south. But that turned out to be very much a non-event in this sort of tidal wave deflationary tape that we're pricing in right now. And so that's kind of how I'm looking at the world since we came out with, um, you know, kind of let the record reflect that last week when we had headlines CPI and PPI come out bang in line, what happened was we got a continuation of the deflation trade, right? And what the deflation trade has been led by has been five-year break-evens, which have been a great market-based inflation expectation. They've been negative for six weeks in a row now. Um, they faded toward the bottom of the recent range that they've been trading at at two point. Uh, excuse me, that they've, they've been holding up above at two point one percent, and that's kind of the only thing that I've got a leg to stand on now, Maggie, where I can expect the market to change at some level. So if we break through that level on the downside at two point one percent in five year break evens, then I expect this deflationary slide that we're seeing to get more extreme. But the reason that it's getting so tricky, and Jared Dillian went over this beautifully in the recent daily briefing. Is that you know we are everyone is sitting here looking for this hairpin turn in back into an inflationary impulse, mm. right? And we don't know if we're going to get that tomorrow, next week, or in 2025 at some point, right? So it's really difficult now. You know this trade right now, as we see it, is we had inflation go from two percent. To nine percent and now back off to four and a half, five percent. Now, where's the bottom going to be? Right? Is it yeah. going to pull back all the way to two percent where it broke out from, 
or is it going to get sticky around here at 5% and next thing you know, there's a big burst? Right now, those are two very different trades for the markets. And extend that market-making decision over a long period of time, and you've got what we're looking at on the tape today, where we've got this sort of non-committal rotation. We've got a several, you know, a small number of stocks really holding the indices up. Um, and we've got very concentrated sector leadership where we've got semiconductors and a couple of other tech sectors paired up with home builders and gold stocks that are really the only game in town if you want to chase performance this year. Yeah. So it's a pretty tricky trade out there right now, Maggie. Yeah, it certainly is. Let's break that up a little bit because yeah. uh, we noticed that you that you did tweet out uh, a part of that conversation that Jared had with Ash last week. And I think, I don't know if you guys agree totally, but he was, I know when we've talked, you've talked about having to trade the market now, including oil, being flat oil, commodities haven't doing anything, watching this deflationary trade, but having the thought that we're in a longer term upward cycle for commodities. And I think you fall into the camp that inflation, there's a good chance inflation comes back. Certainly that's what Jared seemed to be indicating. Let's run that, that clip and then we'll talk on the other side. Sure. I do believe that we're going to have a second inflationary impulse. I think it's going to happen. And I think the Fed will have to respond. And I think, you know, and look, this is not, you know, imminently, uh, maybe 2025, maybe 2026. But at some point in the future, we're going to have 10% on tenure notes. Like that's going to happen. Um, 10% on tenure oh, yeah. notes. Yeah, in the next couple of years. Yeah. So... I mean, right now we're having this disinflationary impulse, um, but what well, you know, the, the, I, I get sick of saying it because I say it all the time. But inflation is really about psychology, okay? And um, we haven't killed the inflation psychology. We we haven't squashed it yet. Like, look, I went to Chipotle today for lunch. Actually, it's funny because I haven't been to Chipotle in like six months. I got. Not that anybody cares about what I eat for lunch, but I got uh, a bowl with double chicken and queso in a large drink for $19.40. And this is in Myrtle Beach. Like, this is the lowest cost of living area in the country, like $20 for Chipotle. People expect price increases. Even though inflation has slowed down, people still have that inflationary mindset. They still expect price increases. And that's why we're going to have another wave of inflation in the future. First of all, I, I loved the expression on Ash's face when Jared said 10%. <laughs> you can see he was, he was smiling in only the way Ash can do. Um, yeah. but, but it's a really interesting, it's a really provocative thing to say, but, it, but it's interesting, this idea that, listen, um, you know, we're, we're not necessarily out of the inflationary woods and this thing may not only come back, but come roaring back. And it's a concern out there, right? Yeah, it was, you know, it, it's definitely, it's, it's on the back burner right now, because as we said, you know, we're pricing in this deflationary tsunami at the moment. But, you know, that was a great comment by Jared. And Jared's one of the few people that can make that comment with a straight face and then back it up with a straight face and say, you know, this is what he's seeing. Um, we kind of, we, we have the similar view here. Um, with maybe slightly different shape, you know, I'm definitely a believer that there's going to be a resurgence of inflation at some point, and we're going to see a hairpin turn in the data. Um, but I think 
for the most part, I'm, I'm seeing it come back because I feel like we've got politically structural inflation right now. You know, I feel like it's very much caused by, you know, the administration's energy policies and some foreign policy, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, I don't want to get political, but we can draw that line really to, you know, when the shakeup was in the, you know, U.S. energy policy with all the executive orders, et cetera. So we're still kind of on that path. We're still on this, you know, come hell or high water, you know, carbon neutral 2030, which is, you know, a fantasy in and of itself. But at least that I think that that hoax is becoming a little bit more popular, you know, and I think that, you know, sort of uh, people invading the BlackRock building in France, et cetera, and things like that are, you know, kind of startling signals where you say, wow, people are kind of waking up to what's going on here. So that's just an interesting but, phenomenon. But, you know, 20, as we go, as we turn from 23 into 24, I mean, it's going to be election here in, year in the U.S. We're not, it, it doesn't have a great track record if, if you take even the energy situation out of it. Cutting spending, being super fiscally uh, tight is not something that usually happens in presidential elections. People usually spend so they get reelected. So, you, you know, even if you look at it through that lens, maybe you are going to have politically, you know, structured inflation. Well, I mean, there we just had how many people pour through the border in the last several days that we're all going to be footing the bill for here. I mean, their entire existence is going to be paid for by the American taxpayer. Does that sound inflationary or does mm -hmm. that sound deflationary to you? I don't know. That sounds inflationary to me. So, but Tony, we'll the market's pricing in easing still, though, isn't it? The bond yeah. market? Yeah, well, we're kind of right on the turn. You know, that was supposed to be the last uh, rate hike. Yes. Yeah, so now we're looking at a path of easing coming down the pike and... You know, that's going to be a question of data dependency again, you know, I would imagine, because if if a little bit of the data starts, you know, stepping out of line on the inflationary side, it's going to take, you know, a lot of the impetus behind the Fed to be able to ease. Um, like you say, it's going to have to be balanced out, I would imagine, by a continually negative data on the employment and economic side. Um, but that's not the part of this trade that I'm good at, right, Maggie? I'm, I'm yeah. not. A, I'm not a biologist, and I'm trying to just find the right trades here. Yeah. So it, it's so interesting to have this conversation because we, uh, you know, we've had these market expectations, and I understand you're all looking for that 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 signal that maybe the market's going to rethink this. We spoke to Atlanta Fed former Atlanta Fed president former Dennis Lockhart Friday. For those who couldn't stick around for the extended second half, um, we talked a lot about the Fred's, Fed's framework. Is it is it working? Is it current? To, to Jared's point about inflation being psychological, are they looking at the right stuff? Are they able to measure in real time what's happening in the economy? Um, and we got a question from a viewer, does the Fed care about the stock market? Do they look at the stock market? Um, do they look at markets in general, especially given on, given all the you know concerns we have about banking and banking crisis? Uh, and this is how he put it. Let's have a listen. The FOMC does not want to be seen as simply the handmaiden of financial markets. Uh, you know, doing in every in every reaction, responding to recent market behavior. The framework that we tended to use when I was there was that we would pay most attention to the real economy. We'll call that the Main Street economy, but obviously attentive to financial conditions because it's through fin financial conditions 
that Fed policy, monetary policy actually has an influence on the real economy. And at the same time, very focused on the statutory objectives uh, of the Fed, the so-called dual mandate, low inflation and maximum employment. And it's through that prism that almost everything is interpreted. So what happens in the financial markets is important because it, it is the way that financial conditions are actually formed, but it is not a goal to necessarily be responsive to the latest sell-off or the latest bull market or the latest move in term interest rates. The Fed doesn't believe it can do that, and it doesn't believe that is its mission. Its mission is the broad real economy and making sure that the two ma mandated objectives are met. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Uh, and that, again, that was in the second half of the extended daily briefings. If you want to be able to um, ask your questions during that time and, and listen along, um, make sure you sign up ahead of time for the next one. You, you can hit the QR code. Uh, so, Tony, it's, it, we've heard, you know, that's like typical Fed speak. We do hear that from time to time. But what, a, and, I, and, you know, I want to again underscore that he's former, but he spent a lot of time at a lot of those meetings and really, I think, has a really good understanding of how the Fed operates. And it was interesting. I was thinking about it in terms of everyone was surprised at the last FOMC meeting that Bernanke didn't kind of talk, uh, not Bernanke, <laughs> Powell didn't talk uh, more about uh being concerned about banking and, you know, kind of didn't really address it as much as people thought and really stayed focused on inflation and employment. And so I I wonder if that make, should make us concerned that the market's kind of aggressively pricing in more rate cuts than maybe the Fed is considering. I don't know. Do you think we have the, we have, that the market has the calculation around the Fed wrong? Uh, you know, it's another tough one for me to gauge, Maggie. I think that um, you know, the more the more the data gives them room to manage expectations via their dual mandate, you know, to say, well, it looks like we have to fight a little inflation or we have to, you know, fight a little inflation here, try to keep employment together here, you know, that kind of just gives them all the more leeway in the world to manage expectations. Yeah. And that's what they happen to be good at, whether or not they're good at managing the actual economy or not. They're usually good at managing that to keep the stock market from coming undone. Yeah. Um, and so that's, you know, that's the game that I'm trying to focus on. Yeah. Yeah. Pay attention to the real economy. So we're going to be we're going to be sort of, you know, bouncing off all of these data releases uh, as we head through the summer until we can get some kind of clarity, I suppose. Uh, so we we. We started talking a little bit earlier about oil. We had a very observant question from or comment from Roger saying, I, th I thought oil found a bottom a few weeks ago. So we should have probably said, is it bottoming in a way that'll finally be able to, to sort of bounce higher? Um, and you've been flat. I know you're looking for that turn. Wondered, wondered if you had any thought about, um, there was a, a comment uh, from the energy secretary saying that they might start refilling the strategic reserve um, after their last mandated um, tapping of it in June. I think, I guess that's the last congressional mandate sale in June. 
Mm-hmm. You think that could lend some support to crude prices? Yeah, you know, it could. And, that you know, I definitely wouldn't take the administration at their word in any capacity in terms of being a buyer of fossil fuels, you know, even through political pressure of, you know, the nation and, and political strategists wanting to see that strategic reserve get filled. You know, they've come up with excuses like it needs maintenance and we're waiting and originally the price wasn't right. So I've got a list of three excuses that they've used so far to not refill the SPR. I'm going to guess that by the time this saga is over, that by the time this administration is over, that I've got a list as long as my arm and they still haven't bought a barrel of oil. Okay, so you sounds like you're not looking for that to lend any significant support. Not really. Not really. I think the best thing that could happen to the administration is that oil falls through the floor and they don't do anything to affect it on its way down. Mm. So we have questions coming in and they are kind of split up, which tells you where people's minds are. We have questions on commodities and questions on technology. Let's stick with commodities for a moment. And uh, before we get to the questions, just want to hit one more news item with you. And that is that we saw some merger activity in the mining space. Newmont acquired <laughs> New Crest Mining in a $19 billion deal. And I saw a headline in The Economist, a recent article in The Economist, saying that deal making is the new digging. You think we're going to continue to see merger activity here? Is that something that you're watching? It could be. You know, I like that it's in the sector that I deeply care about right now. You know, gold miners are one of the leading sectors on the year. You know, they're up about 15, 20 percent and they've been vying with technology for leadership within the S&P. So I find that interesting while gold is attacking this hugely critical 2080 support uh, resistance level, um, which is the two prior tops that it's stalled out at. So if we get through the top of the zone now, it can get really interesting. Um, I thought it was great the way, you know, Newmont played into the sort of GDX price action where the Newmont deal came out or, or sort of negotiations about it and weakness in Newmont came out and caused like a second top in GDX, the gold miners ETF. So that saw, uh, you know, finally saw a 5% pullback last week. That was about the most volatile sector within the S&P. And that's the sector that I'm looking to buy. So that makes me sit up in my chair and see where this is going to shake out. But I think that that consolidation is, you know, good for the sector, good for the industry, makes me even more bullish the sector for the you know rest of the year, potentially looking for more M&A headlines like that. So, yeah, I think it's a good development for me from a trading perspective. It, shift the market up a little bit and gives us a chance to try to buy it cheaper. Mm-hmm. So I have to ask this question because it's from gold miner James right on topic, but he's actually asking about Nat Gas. Thoughts mm-hmm. on Nat Gas? It's been a really tough trade, right? She's bottom feeding right now around $2. There's been false breakouts to the upside, false breakouts to the downside. You know, I, I'm kind of going to stick with my guns and say that until Mother Nature does something extremely out of the ordinary, you know, and causes extremely hot weather, um, you know, or extre- in the summer or extremely cold weather in the winter that causes huge draws on power, on baseload power, I'm going to say we might be stuck at the bottom of this range for a long time. It's certainly not something that you want to just carry around on your books and sit and wait for to happen, in my opinion. Um, you know, it, you can trade things like, you know, Southwestern Energy and Chesapeake when the trade gets going again. And if the trade is real, there should be plenty of time, you know, to get in and out of it and make money. So that's kind of like, you know, a, a, a 
one of the trading rings that I kind of stand outside of until there's a big crowd and a lot of noise going on. And then I'll jump in and see what's going on. Um, but until then, you know, it's just too dangerous for me to try to think that every move to the moving averages is the next breakout or every move to a new low is a breakdown that I can trade. So right now, natural gas is in a very cautious danger zone for me, but I have my eye on it and several of the stocks in case the move gets real that I will be engaged by the time it does. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Yeah. We had a follow-up question on M&A, and I'm not sure. I, I, I want to make sure this is an area that you're looking at. It was specifically M&A activity in the midstream pipeline sector. Um, talking about uh, O-N-E-O-K, O-N-E-O-K, taking over MMP. I don't know. Are you looking in-depth or are you just kind of looking at the sector as a whole and just seeing what's interesting? Yeah, for me, Maggie, for compliance purposes, it's a lot easier to sort of yeah. navigate sectors of the S&P. And I'm really not a good specialist of single stock, um, you know, M&A trading. Yeah, yeah. We got a question about uranium, too. I feel like I feel like uranium and pot stocks are like always going to come up. You, Tony, I don't know. Yeah. And we didn't get one on pot yet. I'm sure someone has one. And we kind of know how you feel there. I think yeah. th- we, I think we won't ask about pot until you change your mind. Then you'll tell us. But same or with you'll uranium. know. Yeah. What what about, are you watching? You have a view on uranium? Yeah, you know, I still have a core position on, you know, the URA ETF has been 18 bid at 22 for, sadly, a year. Wow. Um, Yeah, there's literally, there's no discussion to be had in terms of uranium trading in any way, shape, or form. It's not trending. It's not moving. Um, If you like dead money, it's a great investment. It might be a great place to hide. No, seriously, if you want money to be sitting there waiting for you when you get back from whatever disaster, maybe that's the sector that just won't go down. Um, You know, it sure seems like it's it's, for me, it's kind of worth it to have a, a small bet in that ring just for you know, for, for headline purposes, because it seems like, you know, that's a great way to fade the ESG fantasy and the and the fantasy toward the pivot to electronic vehicles and, and you know, electronic um, armored vehicles and things like that. I mean, that had to be the funniest thing that I ever heard when they talked about, you know, electrifying Abrams tanks and things like that. And, and Doomberg did a brilliant job of blowing that fantasy to shreds with actual science. Um, <laughs> So that's kind of, you know, that's the way to manage that trade. But at least when you hear the administration saying that they're still gung-ho for, you know, all this this push toward electric battery power, it, it lets you stay bullish fossil fuels because the attack on supply is still there. And it also allows you to say, keep a sort of, you know, an expectation for that inflation impulse to come back again, because we know that $1.80 gallon of gas is not coming back anytime soon. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's great. And for and for for those who've made their way through the academy, a lot of what Tony's talking about and giving you some insight in is like the framework he develops, right? He's got to wait for the timing and his trader senses, you know, he's got some parameters on for what that would make sense, but he's got a larger framework when it comes to commodities. So he's just looking for those opportunities, which is why it's really important to sort of have something like that in place so that you can seize the opportunity when it comes. Um, Robert wants to know, I'd love to know your view, Tony's view on the lack of vol. Well, we've got a VIX bleed out into the street right now, right? We had, um, you know, during the banking crises, we saw, you know, VIX bursts into the mid-20s and towards 30, et cetera, et cetera. You know, 
everybody loads up on volatility, loads up on protection, you know, in through these events along various time frames. And, you know, some of the stuff rolls off in the short term and, and the rest of the stuff, you know, traders have on their books and wind up having to trade around. And that's the sort of stuff that sort you know, causes the VIX to bleed out into the teens again. Now, it's really difficult to negotiate, but with the curve still buried at minus 50 basis points, I still think there's a better chance than not that at some point there's going to be another snowball that goes through the window. And I mean, in the form of, you know, an economic data miss or an earnings miss, you know, that throws some sector into a tailspin in the S&P and you get a pop in the VIX back up, you know, into the 20s or something like that. So being long the VIX down here is not an outrageous trade, in my opinion, and it's sort of a necessary equal but opposite to rea reaction to when traders get hysterical and buy it up into the 30s for, you know, a couple of weeks at a time while the Fed is circling banks and, you know, putting them on JP Morgan's balance sheet. Yeah, I, I love your I love your expressions to snowball through the windshield because that is that is exactly what it feels like. Uh, yeah. John asking about copper. Thoughts on copper? You know, it falls right into the category of go figure out when the inflationary turn is going to happen. You know, um, copper to me just came apart in, in a way technically where the bulls are now out of reasons to be bullish copper. You know, she's she had a chance to break out. There was a nice move above her moving averages. She even had that pullback that normally copper uses to shake all the bulls out when it pulls back into its moving averages. And when the copper is right, it holds those moving averages and finds a level and goes and makes a new high. And we just did the exact opposite this time where, you know, that breakout happened and then into the face of this deflationary tsunami that we're trading through, you know, it just got knocked back down below all the major moving averages. Freeport failed at the top of the range. XME metals and mining sector looks like it's under pressure again, has a huge head and shoulders top formation in it. So. To me, the you know the the path of least resistance still looks down now in copper and in those stocks. Mm. G Blackburn has a sort of similar question. Um, well, their their focus his focus is on precious metal exposure, and he's asking or she's asking miners ETFs bullion or futures for long term precious metal exposure. Do you have a preference on how to express that? Good question, G. Yeah, that's an excellent question, right? You want to be in the right vehicle. Um, if you want to get the trade right. And that's something that I've messed up a million times in my career by, you know, being bullish gold and saying, oh, let me buy gold and some gold stocks and some bullion or whatever, and realizing that I'm a little bit too spread out across the board and then gold stocks are underperforming. And then I say, why did I buy all this extra bullion? And if I were to put all the money into the gold trade that I was bullish in the first place, that would have been the best use of my capital. Right. So you got to decide what it is that you want to be bullish and why, in my opinion, right now, you know, the gold miners have been underperforming massively in the last several, you know, I guess you can call it months. You know, they've, they've been underperforming gold as gold has tried to rip through this 2080, 2070 level. Now, in my opinion, as a commodity trader, like I've got to have the gold on when gold goes through that level. Right. I've got to have the commodity on because that's where I feel like the, the pressure point is going to be. Are people going to then turn and, and buy gold stocks? Probably. But when we go into new high territory, that's uncharted territory for gold. 
gold stocks, you're going to look at those and those are going to be rallying back to prices that they've seen thousands of times in their, you know, longstanding history. So to me, it's exciting to be long the commodity that's trading to new all time highs. I would my best case would be to express it properly in gold futures. Um, and that, I think, is the, you know, the best possible way to track this trade down. You know, an ETF probably works just as well. But um, I think you got to decide for yourself whether it is that you're bullish the commodity for the reasons that the commodity should go up or you're bullish the stocks because you think they can catch up to the commodity, which is another completely viable trade, in my opinion. Um, but I'd rather not buy the laggard right now, especially with the low-hanging fruit of this technical breakout to all-time highs in the metal. That's the way. I, that's the way I lean on that trade. Last question I want to get in. It's specific to Nvidia. Can I have Tony's view on Nvidia, please? I don't know if you're in that, that specific stock, but we talked about what's not moving, except Nvidia, right? And a couple others. Microsoft's in the news getting approved for Activision in the EU today for that deal. But Nvidia is up a staggering 102 percent year to date. I think it's up two percent today. It's just it seems like it's an unstoppable. How how do you feel about that? I feel great about it. I mean, I'm in the semiconductor space. That was one of the stocks, the leadership stocks that got me into it um, several weeks ago. And I'm also encouraged by the fact that nobody else asked about technology until we got to the very end of the question and answer period. Um, you know, because for me, it's really interesting that the, we got the third consecutive positive week for the NASDAQ last week and registered the highest weekly close since April of last year, nine months ago was the last time the NASDAQ was trading at this level. And everybody around seems to be wondering how that's possible. And that's really bullish for a person like me to be looking at that and saying, wow, there's one bullish thing I can point to in the markets. And so NVIDIA, yeah, you know, I'm not in the business of fading tech rallies, right? I've already seen what that does to people um, 23 years ago. So I'm gonna try to be on the right side of that if it's early enough, and I feel like we are. Um, you know, tech stocks just got bludgeoned last year, and it seems like there's plenty of room on the upside on the charts. So, you know, that's all the more reason this move in NVIDIA is all the more reason for me to say, ah, yeah, I've got it. Semiconductors, those are going to be the leadership horse, and NVIDIA is the reason I should be in them. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'm kind of looking for NVIDIA to continue trending until it stops, um, and then maybe I'll find another sector of tech to jump into. But that has been very much, you know, the leadership horse right there. And, um, you know, for a trader, you can't ask for better signals than that. Yeah, it's been incredible. And so have you, Tony. Thank you so much. We're out of time, uh, but it's been a fantastic way to kick off the week. Back at you, Maggie. Great job. Great job. We're doing our best here on a Monday afternoon. I think we did pretty good. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Thanks so much. Thanks to all of you for the great questions. We'll be back same time tomorrow with Tavi Costa. So join us then. In the meantime, take care and good luck out there. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance.